Chapter Sixteen of the Snare by Raphael Sabatini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen: The Evidence. The board of officers convened by Marshal Beresford to form the court that was to try Captain Tremayne was presided over by General Sir Harry Stapleton, who was in command of the British troops quartered in Lisbon. It included, amongst others, the adjutant-general, Sir Terence O'Moy, Colonel Fletcher of the Engineers, who had come in haste from Torres Vedras, having first desired to be included in the board chiefly on account of his friendship for Tremaine, and Major Carothers, the judge-advocate's task of conducting the case against the prisoner, was deputed to the quartermaster of Tremaine's own regiment, Major Swan. The court sat in a long, cheerless hall, once the refectory of the Franciscans, who had been the first tenants of Monsanto. It was stone-flagged, the windows set at a height of some ten feet from the ground, the bare whitewashed walls hung with very wooden portraits of long-departed kings and princes of Portugal, who had been benefactors of the order. The court occupied the abbot's table, which was set on a shallow dais at the end of the room, a table of stone with a covering of oak, over which a green cloth had been spread. The officers, twelve in number, besides the president, sat with their backs to the wall, immediately under the inevitable picture of the Last Supper. The court being sworn, Captain Tremaine was brought in by the provost marshal's guard, and given a stool placed immediately before and a few paces from the table perfectly calm and imperturbable he saluted the court and sat down his guards remaining some paces behind him he had declined all offers of a friend to represent him on the grounds that the court could not possibly afford him a case to answer the president a florid rather pompous man who spoke with a faint lisp, cleared his throat and read the charge against the prisoner from the sheet with which he had been supplied. The charge of having violated the recent enactment against dueling, made by the commander-in-chief of His Majesty's forces in the peninsula, in so far as he had fought a duel with Count Geronimo de Samoval, and of murder in so far as that duel, conducted in an irregular manner and without any witnesses, had resulted in the death of the said Count Geronimo de Samoval. "'How say you, then, Captain Tremaine?' the judge advocate challenged him. "'Are you guilty of these charges, or not guilty?' "'Not guilty.' The president sat back and observed the prisoner with an eye that was officially benign. Tremaine's glance considered the court, and met the concerned and grave regard of his colonel of his friend Carothers, and of his two other friends of his own regiment. The cold indifference of three officers of the 14th, then stationed in Lisbon, with whom he was unacquainted, and the utter inscrutability of O'Moy's rather lowering glance, which profoundly intrigued him, and lastly the official hostility of Major Swan, who was on his feet setting forth the case against him, of the remaining members of the court he took no heed from the opening address it did not seem to captain tremayne 
as if this case, which had been hurriedly prepared by Major Swan, chiefly that same morning, would amount to very much. Briefly, the Major announced his intention of establishing, to the satisfaction of the court, how, on the night of the 28th of May, the prisoner, in flagrant violation of an enactment in a general order of the 26th of that same month, had engaged in a duel with Count Geronimo de Semaval, a peer of the realm of Portugal. Followed a short statement of the case from the point of view of the prosecution, an anticipation of the evidence to be called upon, which the major thought, rather sanguinely, opined Captain Tremaine to convict the accused. He concluded with an assurance that the evidence of the prisoner's guilt was as nearly direct as evidence could be in a case of murder. The first witness called was the butler, Mullins. He was introduced by the sergeant-major, stationed by the double doors at the end of the hall, from the anteroom where the witnesses commanded to be present were in waiting. Mullins, rather less venerable than usual as a consequence of agitation and affliction on behalf of Captain Tremaine, to whom he was attached, stated nervously the facts within his knowledge. He was occupied with the silver in the pantry, having remained up in case Sir Terence, who was working late in his study, should require anything before going to bed. Sir Terence called him, and— "'At what time did Sir Terence call you?' asked the Major. "'It was ten minutes past twelve, sir, by the clock in my pantry.' "'Are you sure that the clock was right?' quite sure sir i had put it right that same evening very well then sir terence called you at ten minutes past twelve pray continue he gave me a letter addressed to the commissary general take that says he to the sergeant of the guard at once and tell him to be sure that it is forwarded to the commissary general first thing in the morning i went out at once and on the lawn in the quadrangle I saw a man lying on his back on the grass, and another man kneeling beside him. I ran across to them. It was a bright moonlight night, bright as day it was, and you could see quite clear. The gentleman that was kneeling looks up at me, and I sees it was Captain Tremaine, sir. "'What's this, Captain, dear?' says I. "'It's Count Samoval, and he's killed,' says he. "'For God's sake, go and fetch somebody.' So I ran back to tell Sir Terence, and Sir Terence he came out with me, and mighty startled he was at what he found there. What's happened? says he, and the captain answers him just as he had answered me. It's Count Samoval, and he's killed. But how did it happen? says Sir Terence. Sure, and that's just what I want to know, says the captain. I found him here. And then Sir Terence turns to me, and Mullins, says he, just fetch the guard and of course i went at once was there any one else present not in the quadrangle sir but lady o'moy was on the balcony of her room at the time well then you fetched the guard what happened when you had returned colonel grant arrived sir and i understood him to say that he had been following count samoval which way did colonel grant come put in the president by the gate from the terrace. Was it open? No, sir. Sir Terence himself went to open the wicket when Colonel Grant knocked. 
Sir Harry nodded, and Major Swan resumed the examination. What happened next? Sir Terence ordered the captain under arrest. Did Captain Tremaine submit at once? Well, not quite at once, sir. He naturally made some bother. Good God, he says, you'll never be after thinking I killed him. I tell you I just found him here like this. What were you doing here, then, says Sir Terence? I was coming to see you, says the captain. What about, says Sir Terence? And with that the captain got angry, and he refused to be cross-questioned, and went off to report himself under arrest as he was bid. That closed the butler's evidence, and the judge advocate looked across at the prisoner. Have you any questions for the witness? he inquired. None replied Captain Tremaine. He has given his evidence very faithfully and accurately. Major Swan invited the court to question the witness in any manner it considered desirable. The only one to avail himself of the invitation was Carruthers, who, out of his friendship and concern for Tremaine, and a conviction of Tremaine's innocence, begotten chiefly by that friendship, desired to bring out anything that might tell in his favor. What was Captain Tremaine's bearing when he spoke to you and to Sir Terence? Quite as usual, sir. He was quite calm and not at all perturbed. Devil a bit, not until Sir Terence ordered him under arrest, and then he was a little hot. Thank you, Mullins. Dismissed by the court, Mullins would have departed, but that upon being told by the sergeant-major that he was at liberty to remain if he chose, he found a seat on one of the benches ranged against the wall. The next witness was Sir Terence, who gave his evidence quietly from his place at the board immediately on the President's right. He was pale, but otherwise composed, and the first part of his evidence was no more than a confirmation of what Mullins had said, an exact and strictly truthful statement of the circumstances as he had witnessed them from the moment when Mullins had summoned him. "'You were present, I believe, Sir Terence,' said Major Swan, "'at an altercation that arose on the previous day between Captain Tremaine and the deceased?' "'Yes, it happened at lunch here at Monsanto. What was the nature of it?' "'Count Samoval permitted himself to criticize adversely Lord Wellington's enactment against dueling, and Captain Tremaine defended it. They became a little heated, and the fact was mentioned that Samoval himself was a famous swordsman. Captain Tremaine made the remark that famous swordsmen were required by Count Samoval's country to save it from invasion. The remark was offensive to the deceased, and although the subject was abandoned out of regard for the ladies present, it was abandoned on a threat from Count Samoval to continue it later. Was it continued? Of that I have no knowledge. Invited to cross-examine the witness, Captain Tremaine again declined, admitting freely that all that Sir Terence had said was strictly true. Then Carruthers, who appeared to be intent to act as the prisoner's friend, took up the examination of his chief. It is, of course, admitted that Captain Tremaine enjoyed free access to Monsanto, practically at all hours, in his capacity as your military secretary. Sir Terence? Admitted said sir terence 
and it is therefore possible that he might have come upon the body of the deceased just as Mullins came upon it? It is possible, certainly. The evidence to come will no doubt determine whether it is in tenable opinion. Admitting this, then, the attitude in which Captain Tremaine was discovered would be a perfectly natural one. It would be natural that he should investigate the identity and hurt of the man he found there. Certainly. But it would hardly be natural that he should linger by the body of a man that he had himself slain, thereby incurring the risk of being discovered. That is a question for the court rather than for me. Thank you, Sir Terence. And as no one else desired to question him, Sir Terence resumed his seat, and Lady O'Moy was called. She came in very white and trembling, accompanied by Miss Armitage, whose admittance was suffered by the court, since she would not be called upon to give evidence. One of the officers of the 14th, seated on the extreme right of the table, made gallant haste to set a chair for her ladyship, which she accepted gratefully. The oath administered, she was invited gently by Major Swan to tell the court what she knew of the case before them. But, but I know nothing, she faltered in evident distress, and Sir Terence, his elbow leaning on the table, covered his mouth with his hand, that its movements might not betray him. His eyes glowered upon her with a ferocity that was hardly dissembled. If you will take the trouble to tell the court what you saw from your balcony, the major insisted, the court will be grateful. Perceiving her agitation, and attributing it to nervousness, moved also by that delicate loveliness of hers, and by deference to the adjutant general's lady, Sir Harry Stapleton intervened. Is Lady O'Moy's evidence really necessary? he asked. Does it contribute any fresh fact regarding the discovery of the body? No, sir, Major Swan admitted. It is merely a corroboration of what we have already heard from Mullins and Sir Terence. Then why unnecessarily distress the lady? Oh, for my own part, the prosecutor was submitting when Sir Terence cut in. I think that in the prisoner's interest, perhaps, Lady O'Moy, will not mind being distressed a little. It was at her he looked, and for her and Tremaine alone that he intended the cutting lash of sarcasm concealed from the rest of the court by his smooth accent. Mullins has said, I think, that her ladyship was on the balcony when he came into the quadrangle. Her evidence, therefore, takes us further back in point of time than does Mullins. Again the sarcastic double meaning was only for those two. Considering that the prisoner is being tried for his life, I do not think we should miss anything that may, however slightly, affect our judgment. Sir Terence is right, I think, sir, the judge advocate supported. Very well, then, said the President. Proceed, if you please. Will you be good enough to tell the court, Lady O'Moy, how you came to be upon the balcony? Her pallor had deepened and her eyes looked more than ordinarily large and childlike as they turned this way and that to survey the members of the court. Nervously she dabbed her lips with a handkerchief before answering mechanically as she had been schooled. I heard a cry, and I ran out. You were in bed at the time, of course, quoth her husband, interrupting. What on earth has that to do with it, Sir Terence? 
the president rebuked him out of his earnest desire to cut this examination as short as possible the question sir does not seem to me to be without point replied o'moy he was judicially smooth and self-contained it is intended to enable us to form an opinion as to the lapse of time between her ladyship's hearing the cry and reaching the balcony grudgingly the president admitted the point and the question was repeated yes came lady o'moy's tremulous faltering answer i was in bed but not asleep or were you asleep rapped o'moy again and in answer to the president's impatient glance again explained himself we should know whether perhaps the cry might not have been repeated several times before her ladyship's heard it that is of value it would be more regular ventured the judge advocate if sir terence would reserve his examination of the witness until she has given her evidence very well grumbled sir terence and he sat back foiled for the moment in his deliberate intent to torture her into admissions that must betray her if made i was not asleep she told the court thus answering her husband's last question i heard a cry and ran to the balcony at once that that is all but what did you see from the balcony asked major swan it was dark and of course it-it was dark she answered surely not dark lady o'moy there was a moon i think a full moon yes but-but there was a good deal of shadow in the garden and i couldn't see anything at first but you did eventually oh eventually yes eventually her fingers were twisting and untwisting the handkerchief they held and her distressed loveliness was very piteous to see yet it seems to have occurred to none of them that this distress and the minor contradictions into which it led her were the result of her intent to conceal the truth of her terror lest it should nevertheless be wrung from her only o'moy watching her and reading in her every word and glance and gesture the signs of her falsehood knew the hideous thing she strove to hide even it seemed at the cost of her lover's life to his lacerated soul her torture was balm gloating he watched her then and watched her lover marvelling at the blackguard's complete self-mastery and impassivity even now major swan was urging her gently eventually then what was it you saw i saw a man lying on the ground and another kneeling over him and then almost at once mullins came out and i don't think we need to take this any further major swan the president again interposed we have heard what happened after mullins came out unless the prisoner wishes began the judge advocate by no means said tremaine composedly although outwardly impassive he had been watching her intently and it was his eyes that had perturbed her more than anything in that court it was she who must determine for him how to proceed how far to defend himself he had hoped that by now dick butler might have been got away so that it would have been safe to tell the whole truth although he began to doubt how far that could avail him how far indeed it would be believed in the absence of dick butler her evidence told him that such hopes as he may have entertained had been idle and that he must depend for his life simply upon the court's inability to bring the guilt home to him 
in this he had some confidence for knowing himself innocent it seemed to him incredible that he could be proven guilty failing that nothing short of the discovery of the real slayer of samoval could save him and that was a matter wrapped in the profoundest mystery the only man who could conceivably have fought samoval in such a place was sir terence himself but then it was utterly inconceivable that in that case sir terence who was the very soul of honour should not only keep silent and allow another man to suffer but actually sit here in judgment upon that other and besides there was no quarrel nor ever had been between sir terence and samoval there is major swan was saying just one other matter upon which i should like to question lady o'moy and thereupon he proceeded to do so your ladyship will remember that on the day before the event in which count samoval met his death he was one of a small luncheon party at your house here in monsanto yes she replied wondering fearfully what might be coming now would your ladyship be good enough to tell the court who were the other members of that party it it was hardly a party sir she answered with her unconquerable insistence upon trifles we were just sir terence and myself miss armitage count samoval colonel grant major carruthers and captain tremaine can your ladyship recall any words that passed between the deceased and captain tremaine on that occasion words of disagreement i mean she knew that there had been something but in her benumbed state of mind she was incapable of remembering what it was all that remained in her memory was sylvia's warning after she and her cousin had left the table sylvia's insistence that she should call captain tremaine away to avoid trouble between himself and the count but search as she would the actual subject of disagreement eluded her moreover it occurred to her suddenly and sowed fresh terror in her soul that whatever it was it would tell against captain tremaine i am afraid i don't remember she faltered at last try to think lady o'moy i-i have tried but i-i can't her voice had fallen almost to a whisper need we insist put in the president compassionately there were sufficient witnesses as to what passed on that occasion without further harassing her ladyship quite so sir the major agreed in his dry voice it only remains for the prisoner to question the witness if he so wishes tremaine shook his head it is quite unnecessary sir he assured the president and never saw the swift grim smile that flashed across sir terence's stern face of the court sir terence was the only member who could have desired to prolong the painful examination of her ladyship but he perceived from the president's attitude that he could not do so without betraying the vindictiveness actuating him and so he remained silent for the president he would have gone so far as to suggest that her ladyship should be invited to remain in court against the possibility of further evidence being presently required from her but that he perceived there was no necessity to do so her deadly anxiety concerning the prisoner must in itself be sufficient to determine her to remain as indeed it proved accompanied and half supported by miss armitage who was almost as pale as herself but otherwise very steady in her bearing lady o'moy made her way with faltering steps to the benches ranged against the side wall and sat there to hear the remainder of the proceedings 
after the uninteresting and perfunctory evidence of the sergeant of the guard who had been present when the prisoner was ordered under arrest the next witness called was colonel grant his testimony was strictly in accordance with the facts which we know him to have witnessed but when he was in the middle of his statement an interruption occurred at the extreme right of the dais on which the table stood there was a small oaken door set in the wall and giving access to a small anteroom that was known rightly or wrongly as the abbot's chamber that anteroom communicated directly with what was now the guard-room which accounts for the newcomer being ushered in that way by the corporal at the time at the opening of that door the members of the court looked around in sharp annoyance suspecting here some impertinent intrusion the next moment however this was changed to respectful surprise there was a scraping of chairs and they were all on their feet in token of respect for the slight man in the grey undress frock who entered it was lord wellington saluting the members of the court with two fingers to his cocked hat he immediately desired them to sit peremptorily waving his hand and requesting the president not to allow his entrance to interrupt or interfere with the course of the inquiry a chair for me if you please sergeant he called and when it was fetched took his seat at the end of the table with his back to the door through which he had come and immediately facing the prosecutor he retained his hat but placed his riding crop on the table before him and the only thing he would accept was an officer's notes of the proceedings as far as they had gone which that officer himself was prompt to offer with a repeated injunction to the court to proceed lord wellington became instantly absorbed in the study of these notes colonel grant standing very straight and stiff in the originally red coat which exposure to many weathers had faded to an autumnal brown continued and concluded his statement of what he had seen and heard on the night of the twenty eighth of may in the garden of monsanto the judge advocate now invited him to turn his memory back to the luncheon party at sir terence's on the twenty seventh and to tell the court of the altercation that had passed on that occasion between captain tremaine and count samoval the conversation at table he replied turned as it was perhaps quite natural upon the recently published general order prohibiting duelling and making it a capital offence for officers in his majesty's service in the peninsula count samoval stigmatized the order as a degrading and arbitrary one and spoke in defence of single combat as the only honourable method of settling differences between gentlemen captain tremaine dissented rather sharply and appeared to resent the term degrading applied by the count to the enactment words followed and then someone lady o'moy i think and as i imagine with intent to soothe the feelings of count samoval which appeared to be ruffled appealed to his vanity by mentioning the fact that he was himself a famous swordsman to this captain tremaine's observation was a rather unfortunate one although i must confess that i was fully in sympathy with it at the time he said as nearly as i remember that at the moment portugal was in urgent need of famous swords to defend her from invasion and not to increase the disorders at home lord wellington looked up from the notes and thoughtfully stroked his high-bridged nose his stern handsome face was coldly impassive his fine eyes rested upon the prisoner but his attention all to what colonel grant was saying 
It was a remark of which Samuel betrayed the bitterest resentment. He demanded of Captain Tremaine that he should be more precise, and Tremaine replied that whilst he had spoken generally, Samuel was welcome to the cap if he found it fitted him. To that he added a suggestion that, as the conversation appeared to be tiresome to the ladies, it would be better to change its topic. Count Samuel consented, but with the promise rather threateningly delivered that it should be continued at another time. That, sir, is all, I think. "'Have you any questions for the witness, Captain Tremaine?' inquired the judge advocate. As before, Captain Tremaine's answer was in the negative, coupled with the now usual admission that Colonel Grant's statement accorded perfectly with his own recollection of the facts. The court, however, desired enlightenment on several subjects. Came, first of all, Carruthers' inquiries as to the bearing of the prisoner when ordered under arrest, eliciting from Colonel Grant a variant of the usual reply. "'It was not inconsistent with innocence,' he said. It was an answer which appeared to startle the court, and perhaps Carruthers would have acted best in Tremaine's interest had he left the question there. But having obtained so much, he eagerly sought for more. "'Would you say that it was inconsistent with guilt?' he cried. Colonel Grant smiled slowly, and slowly shook his head. "'I fear I would not go so far as that,' he answered, thereby plunging poor Carruthers into despair. And now Colonel Fletcher voiced a question agitating the minds of several members of the court. "'Colonel Grant,' he said, "'you have told us that on the night in question you had Count Samuel under observation.' and that upon word being brought to you of his movements by one of your agents, you yourself followed him to Monsanto. Would you be good enough to tell the court why you were watching the deceased movements at the time? Colonel Grant glanced at Lord Wellington. He smiled a little reflectively and shook his head. I am afraid that the public interest will not allow me to answer your question. Since, however, Lord Wellington himself is present, I would suggest that you ask his lordship whether I am to give you the information you require. Certainly not, his lordship crisply, without waiting further question. Indeed, one of my reasons for being present is to ensure that nothing on that score shall transpire. There followed a moment's silence. Then the president ventured a question. May we ask, sir, at least, whether Colonel Grant's observation of Count Samoval resulted from any knowledge of, or expectation of, this duel was impending. Certainly you may ask that, Lord Wellington consented. It did not, sir, said Colonel Grant in answer to the question. What grounds had you, Colonel Grant, for assuming that Count Semifal was going to Monsanto? The President asked. Chiefly the direction taken. And nothing else? I think we are upon forbidden ground again, said Colonel Grant, and again he looked at Lord Wellington for direction. I do not see the point of the question, said Lord Wellington, replying to that glance. Colonel Grant has quite plainly informed the court that his observation of Count Samoval had no slightest connection with this duel, nor was inspired by any knowledge or suspicion on his part that any such duel was to be fought. With that I think the court should be content. It has been necessary for Colonel Grant to explain to the court his own presence at Monsanto at midnight on the 28th, 
It would have been better, perhaps, had he simply stated that it was fortuitous, although I can understand that the court might have hesitated to accept such a statement. That, however, is really all that concerns the matter. Colonel Grant happened to be there. That is all that the court need remember. Let me add the assurance that it would not in the least assist the court to know more, so far as the case under consideration is concerned. In view of that, the President notified that he had nothing further to ask the witness, and Colonel Grant saluted and withdrew to a seat near Lady O'Moy. There followed the evidence of Major Carruthers with regard to the dispute between Count Samoval and Captain Tremaine, which substantially bore out what Sir Terence and Colonel Grant had already said, notwithstanding that it manifested a strong bias in favor of the prisoner. The conversation which Samoval threatened to resume does not appear to have been resumed, he added in conclusion. How can you say that? Major Swan asked him. I state my opinion, sir, flashed Carruthers, his chubby face reddening. Indeed, sir, you may not, the President assured him. You are upon oath to give evidence of facts directly within your own personal knowledge. It is directly within my own personal knowledge that Captain Tremaine was called away from the table by Lady O'Moy, and that he did not have another opportunity of speaking with Count Samoval that day. I saw the Count leave shortly after, and at the time Captain Tremaine was still with her ladyship, as her ladyship can testify if necessary. He spent the remainder of the afternoon with me at work, and we went home together in the evening. We share the same lodging in Alcantara. There was still all the next day, said Sir Harry. Do you say that the prisoner was never out of your sight on that day, too? I do not, but I can't believe. I am afraid you are going to state opinions again, Major Swan interposed. It is evidence of a kind, insisted Carruthers with the tenacity of a bulldog. He looked as if he would make it a personal matter between himself and Major Swan if he were not allowed to proceed. I can't believe that Captain Tremaine would have embroiled himself further with Count Samoval. Captain Tremaine has too high a regard for discipline and for orders, and he is the least excitable man I have ever known. Nor do I believe that he would have consented to meet Samoval without my knowledge. Not perhaps unless Captain Tremaine desired to keep the matter secret in view of the general order, which is precisely what it is contended that he did. Falsely contended, then snapped Major Carruthers, to be instantly rebuked by the President. He sat down in a huff, and the judge advocate called Private Bates, who had been on sentry duty on the night of the 28th, to corroborate the evidence of the sergeant of the guard as to the hour at which the prisoner had driven up to Monsanto in his curricle. Private Bates having been heard, Major Swan announced that he did not propose to call any further witnesses, and resumed his seat. Thereupon, to the President's invitation, Captain Tremaine replied that he had no witnesses to call at all. "'In that case, Major Swan,' said Sir Harry, "'the court will be glad to hear you further.' And Major Swan came to his feet, again to address the court for the prosecution. End of chapter 16, read by Peter Strom, on the coast of Chile, on March 3, 2019.